0: I was at a disadvantage in the late 80s and the early 90s in the club scene for a bunch of reasons. I was a sober, shy, cisgendered straight guy, and I was also, to my great shame, kind of a serious Christian at the time.
1: Wow. Um, I remember this. Yeah, you were the vegan, Christian, straight edge, bald DJ is how people described you. (laughs) Money, success. I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Hello, boys. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Today, we are over the moon to have with us a very special guest. He is a DJ, singer, songwriter, pop star. He is the author of two books of memoirs, He is the subject of a new documentary that is out now. He is a restaurateur, an animal rights activist. Uh, He is an EDM icon and responsible for the soundtrack of our lives, really. Uh, Please welcome Richard Melville Hall, a.k.a. Moby.
0: Ah! (laughs) Hi, how are you?
1: (laughs) I'm very good. Uh, you all know each other. We've all we've all known each other forever, right?
0: Also, I recognize you guys from our like middle-aged guy bald club. <laughs> How dare you!
1: I am not middle-aged. I am still a twunk.
2: Well, I was going to say not middle-aged. We're ancient. We're beyond middle-aged. We
1: are, <laughs> we are all ancient.
0: It's it's hard because for the longest time. Like in my 30s, I would jokingly refer to myself as middle-aged. Then in my 40s, I realized it was no longer a joke that I was actually middle-aged. And now I'm 55. And like at one point, calling myself middle-aged was sort of like self-deprecating. And now it's (laughs) almost delusional because I'm just an old person.
1: (laughs) Well, I I remember when I was 25 and I would go to the raves and I was considered ancient at 25 and they would say granny at the rave. And I actually one time I had a walker and I would wear gray wigs just as a joke, but it wasn't funny at the time because there really was such ageism, I think, in uh, the the club scene. And at 25, like I was already considered a has-been. I don't know if either of you, if any of you remember that or not?
2: Um, Remember you being a has-been at 25 or when we were?
1: I was definitely, you remember me being a has-been at 25, yes. You
2: know, I was going to say that I never, Moby, I think I've only met you or known you since we've all been in LA. I didn't know you in the club scene back in New York in the olden days. James, did you know Moby then? Well, I definitely. We're
1: gonna we're gonna talk about this a lot, but I remember very specifically when um, the basement at Mars really started taking off, and people were was you know talking about Moby 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 all the time. And it wasn't until probably '94. I don't know if you remember this Moby, but um, uh, you had done an interview with Project X. And um, uh, I know Julie Jules was very much... Uh, you, you were friends with Julie, and I know you were friends with Michael and Kyoki as well. So I sort of knew you of you through them, but I don't know that we ever actually talked that much uh, in the 90s.
0: I was sort of at... I was at a disadvantage in the late 80s and the early 90s in the club scene for a bunch of reasons. One, I was just cripplingly insecure, but also... I was sober at that time. I had this brief period of sobriety from 87 to 95, followed by 13 years of lunatic addiction. And now I'm sober again. But so in the late 80s, early 90s, I was a sober, shy, cisgendered straight guy. And I was also, to my great shame, kind of a serious Christian at the time.
2: Wow. Um,
1: I remember this. Yeah. You were the vegan Christian, straight edge, bald DJ, is how people described you. (laughs)
0: It was a little odd, sort of as a sober, straight Christian, I would be DJing at sex parties, and Michael and I were weirdly close. Like I spent, you know, and as I'm sure it's true for all of us, it's a hard thing to say now because he ended up, you know, becoming a murdering lunatic. But I loved him, you know, like I really had so much, I had such a great connection with him, like 89, 90, 91, and, um, but the world, his world, our world, your world, was very intimidating to me, because, not intimidating because of the degeneracy, intimidating because you guys were all cooler than me. I don't know that that was actually true. I oh, just want to say, like, I went to a dinner. I remember in 91 or 92 that Michael organized this dinner. And maybe you guys were there, but, like, Walt Paper was there and Genitalia. And I walked in and I was like, wow, everybody here is so much cooler than me. And I was just sort of struck mute by shyness.
1: You know it's funny, you Darian people are always do because Chloe Sevigny always does this to me too, saying how intimidated she was by the club scene, but the way I remember it, I remember you walking in and everybody being a little bit in awe of you and there were and and Chloe was the same way Chloe always says that she was intimidated by the club kids, but we were always very intimidated by her, and so I think if there was a wall there, it was because we were thinking you were cooler and you were thinking. We were cooler, and so probably not much conversating got
0: done and also at that point, you guys had all discovered ketamine, so you were <laughs> that's that we will we will get to that because.
1: I I also wonder if a little bit maybe you did it a little ass backwards where probably it might have been more fun for you to be fucked up from 88 to 95 <laughs> and then so in so because those were the years where things were really out of control for most people.
2: Do you remember um, the first time you met Michael? And and do you remember the first time you met James? I'd love to hear yeah. those, gen- those origin stories. I think it would have been right around the
0: same time at Limelight. Uh, and I think I had just DJed for the first time at Limelight and Michael took me to the offices. Um, I was maybe there to pick up my $100 check and Michael took me to the office and like that back through this warren of rooms, he took me to Peter Gation's office and I was terrified. And I'm not just being like comically self-deprecating, but I was like, like, this is Peter Gation. He owns everything and he's got an iPad and he's <laughs>
3: scary
0: as fuck. And... And I remember Michael saying, like, Moby, this is Peter. Peter, this is Moby. He's a new DJ. And Peter Gation just looked at me and didn't even say anything. just went back to what he was doing. And I was like, did that mean I'm fired? Does that mean, (laughs) did I not pass some sort of test? And so, James, I would have definitely encountered you around, like, the same time I met Clara the chicken, basically. (laughs) It's funny because I was talking to
1: Peter the other day, and we were. Um, he, I mentioned that, that you were going to be on the show, and he was laughing. And he said he remembered uh, something where um, he had an argument. He was uh, you were supposed to DJ, and it was one of your first gigs there. And he yelled at the guy, and he said, "Is this guy Moby worth three hundred dollars?" Cause that was, it was like an outrageous amount of money that you were being paid at the time. And he was like, is this guy worth it? And we were laughing because I remember doing doors. And when I would get a hundred dollars to do, I thought I had made it. I thought that like, this is, nobody has ever been as successful as I am right now. And yeah, I remember you talking about when you first started doing the basement at, on um, March and getting a hundred dollars. And that was just, that was outrageous. And to put it in
0: perspective, at that point, I was living in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood in Connecticut, and I didn't have running water or a bathroom. So $100, that represented about approximately 5% of my yearly income was $100. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh,
1: you talk about that in both the documentary and in Porcelain, your memoir. And it sounds like such a fantasy to me that I would have had as a teenager. You lived in this abandoned factory in Connecticut, and it was huge. And they, um, there were security guards there that you would pay them, what, $50 a month, yeah. a month to live mm-hmm. there, to squat there. And you were between a gay porn studio and what was – Well, in
0: my particular space, on one hand, there was a sort of a gay porn – production company. Um and they were delightful. On the other side was this sociopathic artist who was just a dick. So you know, (laughs) and the gay porn side, like they kept a lot of like videotapes, books there, and they occasionally did production, which of course you would the walls were thin and so you would hear a lot of, you know, A lot of sounds and, you know, that, that smell of fruit flavored lube or whatever they were using. (laughs) (sighs) But
1: you didn't have running water. So there was no toilet, no, no faucet or anything. And there was no heat or did you have a little heater? Well, I had, well,
0: luckily the electricity was free. And so I had a, a little electric space heater and they would turn on the heat when it got really cold to keep the pipes from freezing in the building. Um, But yeah, there was a, there was a toilet and a sink about 300 yards down a hallway and up a flight of stairs. But, and I would just, in the meantime, I would just pee in bottles. Did you ever see the movie
1: Diva, that the French opera movie? Oh, well, there's a, there's a, he lives in this giant loft and there's a bathtub in the middle of the loft and his girlfriend roller skates around the loft all day long. And it's sort of, that's sort of what I imagined in my head where you talk about how you, it was just this huge factory and you would mo-
0: ride your motorcycle through the factory. Yeah. My, fr- my friend Lee had a motorcycle and so he would ride his motorcycle. I was way too poor to have a motorcycle. I had a moped that my
2: grandmother <laughs> gave me when I was 16 and it barely worked. See, this is an interesting point, though, James, because Diva was so art directed and glossy and aspirational, living in a loft, you know, and it was vast. It wasn't really tawdry and awful, which, Moby, your description sounds like it was tawdry and awful and not glamorous at all.
1: When I was a teenager, that sounds very glamorous. It sounds very punk rock and sort of cool to, to live so far on the edge. Uh, but I, I guess it, it
0: probably wasn't. Do you look back fondly on that era? Well, the weird thing, and I don't know if you all have had this similar experience, is at that age, I was what, like 21, 22. Um, I had this great group of friends and we were all the roughly the same age and the same economic circumstances. And we were filled with this sort of like, naive optimism almost like Dickensian like we were gonna go into the world and we were gonna like do our art or make our place and like there was just this shared sense of wonder and discovery like everything was new and at that point everything kind of was new like the music was new the technology was new we were leaving the cold war behind and we were entering this new era of like post Soviet cold war politics. And it really felt so like living in a, in a squat an abandoned factory. I don't know. It, I, I loved it for what it was, but also just contextually what that time period was like. And um, I look back now and I'm like, Oh, there was like a solidarity I had with my, with my friend group that I've never had since. There was a
1: lot of that at the time. And I think that's just, you know, part of being young and, and it's your first foray into nightlife in the world and the feeling that like anything is possible. It It is, it was, and I also think that there was, that was a real pivotal time right there musically and in the club scene, the, the, the going from the eighties into the nineties when it just felt like the world had changed
0: so much overnight. And so Fenton and Randy, I'm wondering how, because we didn't meet back then, you guys were involved. When did you get involved in New York degenerate
2: nightlife? (laughs) We were at film school and we would skip out of our editing class to go to the Pyramid Cocktail Bar and Lounge for happy hour. And that's where we first got exposed to a lot of the legendary drag queens and the acts but, uh, I, you know, we didn't meet Michael until quite a few years later, and he was so annoying. He was a, 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 a busboy at Dance Theater at Congo Bills, and he'd always want us to... We were DJs. Uh, can I just clarify, though, we weren't good DJs. We would just put on the Studio 54 premixed album you know, and play the whole thing. Um, But Michael would always come up and and stick his hand down my pants and ask for uh, Heart of Glass by Blondie. So that was an easy uh, request. And then he wanted to know how to throw parties and he took us to McDonald's for dinner. And because we'd thrown a few parties at Congo Bills and Danceria. But what I wanted to ask you, Moby, was like, what drew you to Michael? Like, what did you see in him? Because I agree with you, it's in the wake of his death and not many people have said, have had many kind things to say about him. And I think that there's there was a Michael before he went off the rails as it were. I mean, what drew you to Michael? What did you see in him? Well,
0: uh, I think part of it was, and it is hard because like by 93, 94, 95, like the drugs had gotten so out of control and people were, I mean, forgive me for stating the obvious, people are going to very dark places. But 89, 90, 91, there was, I guess what, what drew me to him was the, the sort of the innocence. And of course, it was like suffused or infused with degeneracy. But at that time, it was just this sort of celebratory, every, everything felt Weirdly exciting and joyful, and he was the architect of it. you know one of the most wonderful memories I have from that time was an outlaw party that he did on the L train. I don't know if you guys were there. Um, oh, yeah. oh yeah, and at oh, that no. point I was living I had finally worked up my courage. I'd moved to New York. I was living on fourteenth and third, and so my friend Lee and I walked out of our apartment, walked ten feet into the L train stop. the L train pulled up. There were a thousand people on the l train screaming at the top of their lungs and it was so euphoric and i guess i just recognized and of course michael the shameless self-promoter it stopped at sixth avenue and everyone had to walk up and go to the limelight so (laughs) but the, the the joyful anarchy of it you know the sort of the explosive expansive aspect of that culture you know and and at that point, he, I just found him to be incredibly sort of almost, I mean, this, these are not adjectives anyone else would use to describe him, but he's just very gentle and benign. At least all my dealings with him up until a certain point were that.
1: I want to go back a little bit to your first big gig, which was Mars, Rudolph's Club. And um, uh, you've talked at length about how um you were very broke at the time and you took your, you took the um, subway in or the train into New York to deliver uh, opening night. They were, they were still looking for people to, uh, to work there. And you joined a huge long line of people for bus boys. And, uh, and you finally got to the front of the line and Yuki, was it Yuki that was there or who was there?
0: I didn't know that DJs didn't get hired based on a resume. Like I assume when you guys were DJing at Dan you didn't show up at Dan with a cassette and a resume and say, oh, here are my, here's my CV, please hire me. So I, my girlfriend at the time was working at Interview and she said, oh, there's this new club opening called Mars and they're hiring. And so I made a demo tape with house music on one side and hip hop on the other side. And I made, I actually wrote out a resume of my DJ experience And I went and I dropped it off with the woman at Mars who was hiring barbacks and busboys, et cetera. And she laughed at me, (laughs) understandably. But somehow this tape ended up in the hands of Yuki, who was booking the DJs and who called me. Really great guy. Mm -hmm. Wonderful guy. This is still professionally the most exciting moment of my entire life was when I took the train back to Connecticut to my abandoned factory. And by the way, the train, I would hide in the bathroom so I wouldn't have to pay the buy a ticket. So I get back to my, my abandoned factory and I'm all chastened and sad because the lady had laughed at me when I tried to give her my cassette and resume. And I listened to my answering machine message and there was a message from Yuki asking me to call him about working at Mars. It still is the most exciting thing that 's ever happened to me professionally. I remember very clearly
1: um that Michael and Rudolph uh were working on mars that they were um they were collaborating. And that Michael always has a story. That Michael was responsible for the creative and the the look of the club and the 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 whole you know idea of of Mars. And then two weeks before it opened, Rudolph fired him and put out a bulletin saying that club kids were over. That no club kids would be allowed at Mars. And it was this sort of like um. I, I don't know if they had planned it together, but then all the people who hated the club kids then said, oh, thank God we can go to Mars. And Mars became famous for not allowing club kids. And so I, we were never, Michael never allowed any of us to go to Mars to see what was happening. But I do remember we would go for Chip Duckett's thing on Sundays. Remember he had gay night at Mars.
0: Oh, I loved in Fenton. Speaking of pyramid, that's where I first met Chip Duckett. Cause I think he did his, his nights at the pyramid forever i wouldn't be surprised if they're still going on like i feel like (laughs) um but i mean he was yeah i think like i that was around the time i met lady bunny and maybe it was even at wigstock 89 when it was still at Tompkins square park or on the piers um i had forgotten about yeah chip sunday nights at mars were phenomenal and 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 again forgive me for stating the obvious but the one thing that was So remarkable about nightlife back then was how, in a weird way, how nightlife was a refuge for so many people, almost literally and figuratively. It was, you know, a physical refuge because, you know, as we know, the rest of New York was being torn apart by, you know, like gun violence and drug violence and gang violence, but just a refuge, especially for the sort of like the disenfranchised, Uh you know. You know, gay Latino, gay African American, gay Asian, just people who'd been maligned in their communities could go out and be welcomed and celebrated. And it really, I don't know if that has existed in that sort of way since then
1: there was a scene that sort of was, that was sprouting up in the basement of Mars. I, I know that a, a lot of hip hop royalty was, was coming through and checking out what was going on, but I remember you sort of knew that you made it when Willie Ninja showed up one night on the dance
0: floor. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, I, I was playing, <laughs> that was one of the first times I actually DJed on the first floor. Um, oh, okay. And I think it was a night that Mark Kamens who actually had discovered Madonna, from dance Theory. like he was supposed to be playing but i guess something had happened and he wasn't so i got hired at last minute by yuki to play records mm-hmm. on the first floor and there was willy ninja and the funny thing is that i'm sure you guys have experienced like i unfortunately am straight but throughout the course of my straight life i have met so many beautiful, compelling gay men where I was like, oh, where I've cursed my heterosexuality. I was like, why couldn't I just have some wiggle room? No pun intended, no pun intended, like, and I just remember seeing like, cause this was 89 when voguing was sort of like in a way at its peak, like, and the whole, like the, the middle of the first floor was just these, you know, these houses coming down to have like ad hoc competitions. And it was, it was pretty beautiful. One thing that I never knew about until I was
1: reading in porcelain, and I find this so fascinating, was the um, the the every Friday night, uh, every all the DJs would go down to a, a
0: record store. Was it on Canal Street? Where what was it? There was. If I'm, oh, my memory is not great, but there was Vinyl Mania on Carmine Street. That was a big one. Uh, there was a store in I think in Times Square, I want to say Disco Rama, Discomania. Uh-huh. Um and then there was Larry, uh what was his last name? He opened dance tracks. And that was the first place I ever met Frankie Knuckles, and I couldn't believe that I was in the same physical space as Frankie Knuckles. <laughs> um and I think that was in the East Village on Fourth Street, it was right by the Hells Angels. Um, Okay, yeah. (laughs) So you would as a DJ, you would go to all of these places on a Friday afternoon because that's when the new records came in. And invariably there'd be this crush or like a scrum of DJs up against the the counter where they're playing the records, and the royalty would be brought to the front. You know, like like they just like Frankie and Junior, and then some of the hip hop DJs like Red Alert or Clark Kent, like these were royalties, so they were up at front. And there was this, it was almost like an auction where they like, the, the DJ at the counter would play a record. And if Frankie Knuckles was there or Dimitri from Delight, they would just nod imperceptibly and immediately everyone wanted that record.
1: <laughs> Depending on how important you are, mm-hmm. you got the record and then the lesser DJs in the back would all be frustrated because they couldn't get it right
0: oh yeah you'd raise your hand you'd be like me like i want that copy of break for love by rays or you know doug lazy let it roll
3: it was amazing back then just like how a record could explode in new york that was just such an exciting time that there were these hit hit records that sometimes didn't even travel much beyond new york city but were that you know like, seemed like these massive hits because you'd hear them in the club. Oh, absolutely.
1: Like Sweet Pussy Pauline, I remember, you know, some of those songs.
0: Like, yeah, I mean, some of those, because I would DJ in the suburbs, you know, in the late 80s, into 1990, and you'd play one of those records, you know? Like, do you remember a song called Set It Off by Strafe?
3: Yeah. Oh, my
0: God. (laughs) (laughs) Massive, like, Mm -hmm. in New York you would play it and it was a nine minute long song and it was the biggest hit, cross the water and try and play it and people would stop dancing and walk off the dance floor because it was so
2: wonderfully like provincial in the best way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that guy, but I was just thinking of the the pyramid was, for me, it was White Horse. If you wanna ride, ride the White Horse. And um, Boy Book of Love was very much a pyramid track um oh yeah oh the lion sleeps tonight you know the the one about the women beat their men what was that dominatrix dominatrix
1: Dominatrix, sleeps tonight yeah dominique yes she played at my birthday party on my 19th birthday party that was like the coolest thing that had ever happened (laughs) to me
0: yeah these these songs were so phenomenally iconic like you couldn't get away from them in lower manhattan and outside of lower manhattan no one had ever heard them
1: But then I think that brings us to the success of Go, which uh, was your first big hit. And that was sort of when something that started in the club scene and then transcended and went around the world a million times. And uh, I love that wherever you went, they would introduce you as
0: Moby Go. Here comes Moby <laughs> Go,
1: everyone. In Uh-oh, the sorry. early
0: days, it was a little bit confusing. One of my favorite memories from then was the first time I played in Miami – um, I arrive in Miami, and I looked at the club flyer announcing my show, and it said Mob Nine. So they'd gotten my name wrong, <laughs> singing, and I was like, "Well, actually, no. There's no singing on that record. Their hit." And I was like, "Well, there's no there because I'm just one person." Well, that, now you could be they them that those could be your pronouns. They said they, so it was Mob Nine singing their hit. Okay. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like this is amazing. they got every single thing wrong <laughs> um
1: uh, but that was that really opened a lot of doors for you, and at that point, you were were you still playing in in the clubs, or were you mostly touring in what
0: was it like ninety two ninety three uh I was playing basically just everywhere um I mean, I would you know still occasionally play at uh at the limelight, you know, playing at um, I always forget what to call it because it's been so many different things: Shelter, Area B, squared. Quick, it was quick for a while. Yeah, that was Rudolph's place. Yeah, quick, that club, basically the club on Hubert Street, and um, <laughs> and just touring constantly because the song "Go" that you mentioned, when it was first released, it was this minimal techno track, and it sold a thousand copies. And then I did the remix that included elements of Twin Peaks, and it went on to be this crazy top 10 single in Europe and South America and Asia. And it was very odd, like, leaving my abandoned factory to fly to the UK to do top of the pops in between Michael Jackson and Phil Collins.
1: (laughs) One of the the ways the eighties and the nineties differentiated a little bit was this uh the deification of the d j which happened in the nineties. The dance floor was very democratic and there were no there was no tiers like hierarchy of dancers like there were like the the club kids had a hierarchy, but it all sort of all the power went to the d j and the promoters and everything everybody else was sort of the same. Do you agree with that or
0: Do you you recognize that? I'm sure we all remember like a lot of DJs, like, I mean, in the 70s into the 80s, there were, I mean, obviously there were the legends, um, uh, what's his name? Jellybean Benitez. Like there were a few, but a lot of DJs were kind of like, you know, like when I was DJing in Port Chester, New York, I got paid $25 a night. And you were shoved in the corner, expected to play hits, you know. So there really it wasn't glamorous, but I feel like in the rate, like in the house scene and then the rave scene, like people needed a figure to focus on, you know. And the artists mm-hmm. were largely anonymous, like Fenton and Randy. Every track we just mentioned, I don't know who those people are. Like Book of Love, what do they mm. look like? Dominatrix? Is there even a person? Um, strafe is that a person or a producer so there were there were no pictures for the most part on the records and there wasn't Uh that cult of personality applied to the artist and like so people would be on the dance floor having these transcendent experiences and they'd look up and they'd see the dj and give the dj all the credit and i sometimes wanted to almost point out to the audience i was like you know i didn't i didn't make these records like i'm just playing other people's music but if you want to give me credit for other people's work
1: by all means (laughs) <laughs> but I, I also think that there probably wasn't uh, the social scene that there were there was in the 80s uh, in the in the club scene of the 90s because everyone was taking ecstasy on the dance floor and they weren't talking. They were just sort of hugging each other and, and holding hands and dancing
0: um, until ketamine took over. Because as we know, it went from
1: hugging to sitting, to being stacked in corners on top of each other.
0: Yeah, once ketamine kicked in, and I still think of that scene of Seth Green as you making ketamine in his on on the baking tray in his kitchen. And was there a giant rat involved as well? <laughs> <laughs> Both in real life and in the movie, there were many giant rats. <laughs>
1: talking rats they talk to you
0: after the after the ketamine hit <laughs> it's amazing that uh, so many of us thought that smoking animal tranquilizer was a great idea and
1: then when when the when the cat tranquilizer stopped working you went up to horse tranquilizer and then when the horse tranquilizer stopped then you were looking for elephant tranquilizer to try and match the
2: high <laughs> you you know you would saying moby how you uh. Cis, a uh, straight guy who was Christian and sober. So I'm the, and the Christian and the sober bit. When did that magnetic polarity change? When did you first start? What was the first drug you did and why did you do it? What sort of, I mean, in my imagination, Michael gave you a bump of K, but I'm sure it's much more. It's
0: well, okay. So I actually started doing drugs when I was 10 years old um, because my mom did a bunch of drugs and she dated hell's angels and different oddballs. And so there are all drugs around my house. And so when I was 10, I started stealing drugs from my mom and her boyfriends. um, And then started drinking when I was around 12. And I, I, I always liked drugs, but I loved drinking. And so by 1987, I was 21 years old and I was bottomed out. So I got sober and that's how I had that, seven or eight year period of sobriety from 87 to 95. Um, So the first drug I ever did, and you'll be, this might actually be slightly better than Michael giving me a bump of K. (laughs) Is When I was around 11 years old, a friend of mine's sister was in the psychiatric ward. And so he would steal her drugs and we don't know what they were. And we would take them. So I would like, Smoke marijuana and hash and drink cocktails in a can. If anyone remembers cocktails in a can that we would steal from our parents and take the antipsychotic drugs that my friend had stolen from his sister. And to that end, it's quite possible that I have been in a padded cell ever since, and you all are just
3: a hallucination.
1: (laughs) I remember as a teenager. I I definitely remember there, there would be parties and everyone would just put a bunch of pills in a bowl and you would pass the bowl around and you didn't know what you were taking. You would just grab a pill from the bowl and see what would happen if you would go up or down and, and what would happen to you.
0: Well, before I got sober the second time, one of my favorite things was the white powder version of that, which basically – you would like I would sometimes you'd be on the street you'd find a bag of white powder and you'd do it not knowing what it was but sort of hoping it wasn't cocaine because that seemed kind of pedestrian. I remember at Tunnel we I mean
1: uh, at, at uh, Lime White, Michael would have games where he would line up. Uh, three or four different lines of white powder rails, and you would do them, and then you would you'd have to if you could guess which one this was K, this was coke, this was heroin, this was meth, and you if you could guess which one was which, you got to do them all, and that was a big game that the club kids played, and so everyone would line up to see to see if if this one sparkled, if it sparkled a little bit, that was K, if it had a brownish, then it was I mean like it was just disgusting,
0: <laughs> and somehow I can't figure it out we are all here capable of stringing sentences together. Like it's just mind boggling.
1: (laughs) I wonder though, if being sober and, and Christian and straight edge, if there was a feeling of, did you feel maybe superior a little bit to all these messes that were lying on the ground or was there sort of a feeling of, of proselytizing that you were like maybe bringing the message to, to the unwashed masses? What was that?
0: Well, the funny thing, is because I had been, because keep in mind, from the time I was 10 until 22, I drank and did a ton of drugs. So when I saw other people doing that during my mid sober period I didn't judge them because I was like, oh, that had been me, but worse. Like at the height of my early drinking, I would get blind drunk, throw up, and I would make myself throw up simply so I could go drink more. Um, And so it's very hard for me. Like when, when you've woken up covered in your own vomit many times, it's really hard to judge other people for doing similar things.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, let's talk about NASA because NASA was, um, uh, such an interesting club. It was in, you guys, it was in the area space and it was pretty much, I mean, it was kind of, it wasn't the birth of, of the rave scene in New York city, but it was probably where it peaked a little bit. And it was, um, it was Scotto was, uh, did the lights there. Right. And Gabriel did the door. And Soul Slinger was the DJ. You and Soul Slinger, and um, who else? Peter. I don't know if you remember Peter. Peter, boyfriend Steeler. <laughs> he was he was there. But it was um, it, it was an interesting space. It was sort of a new generation of, of club people, and they kind of turned their noses up a little bit at the club kids when they would come at five in the morning because they were sort of the older the older generation that they were trying
0: to break away from. Do you, did you see that a little bit? I definitely. So it was a very it was much more suburban scene, you know. Because as as we know, like you know, New York in the '80s, one of the things that made it wonderful was it was like people who lived in New York, who went to FIT, who went to Parsons, who were paying eighty dollars a month rent, you know, and there, there was this creative celebration. And NASA, as much as I loved it, it was a lot of people from New Jersey, from Connecticut, from Long Island, from upstate coming in, and so as a result, culturally, it was actually a little bit more conservative. In fact, around that time, 92, 93, I remember one time, and I'm not gonna mention them, I don't even know if they still exist, but there was a British band, a rave band, and I was DJing with them at NASA, and they said something homophobic. And I was so taken aback, And I actually said to them, I was like, do you know where this culture comes from? Like, this is gay culture. We are just the claim jumpers on it. You know, like, like we are making like all of this music, all of this culture started in the gay scene in the 70s and in the 80s. And I was so amazed and horrified that someone would be homophobic in the house music rave scene. You know, it's kind of like the equivalent of someone being racist and being in a hip hop band. Yeah.
1: Um, But I can definitely see where there would be maybe a little homophobia with all the suburban kids who weren't influenced by the, the New York club scene.
0: Yeah, hopefully they were, hopefully they were converted into, you know, a more sort of enlightened way of looking at the world. Well, I know that we tried to convert many of them personally and i'm sure a lot of them very happily went along with it you know like there're probably there're probably <laughs> bathroom floors everywhere that are testament to that
1: <laughs> i remember um you wrote in porcelain which i just got to say porcelain is is such a fantastic book i i think everybody needs to to read it 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 documents that period from 88 to about probably 99 um uh that that we're talking about here um and it's it's like i said it's beautifully written and it's funny because as i was reading it there's so many just little juicy chewy bits that i that i really enjoyed really got got into and i kept thinking to myself did he ghostwrite write this did, this did he really write this and um then at the very end in your afterwards you tell a story about your agent saying to you you that you wanted to have a ghost writer and the agent said moby if you're claiming Herman Melville as a descendant, you've got to at least try to write this book. And so come to find out that you really, you did write it. And I got to commend you that, it's, that it is a really a great book. It's interesting.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was very disappointing because I'm sure that we've all read books that have been ghostwritten and just thought what I thought, which was this seems like the greatest job in the world. Like you sit down with a talented writer you talk for a couple of weeks and they turn your stories into a great book. And I was so excited to do that. And yeah, yeah and then my uh, agent said, you know, if you are descended from Herman Melville, you have to write your own book. <laughs> He's like, I'm, so, and, and I was so annoyed because I was like, well, I just want to like get an advance and have someone else write it for me. That seems so fun. But no, I ended up having to write it. And the, the odd thing is, I found out almost obsessively how much I loved writing and then weirdly one of my favorite parts of writing is the editing process like both of these books I edited them like full passes probably 30 times like I just kept going through and editing and editing it's also really satisfying as you probably know to take people out of your story and it's almost this, this sort of divine omniscience. You're like, you're like, I no longer want this person in my story, and boom, they're exercised. <laughs> I, I've gotten in
1: trouble for that many, many times for editing people out of my life. Um, we've I've been told uh during this podcast, in fact, a couple of people have been a little
0: frustrated with me. So Fenton, Randy, James and I again maybe you're I don't you don't want to get in trouble, but like of the people that you guys have spoken to, okay, rather than ask who's been terrible, let me ask who have you been surprised by any of your guests being really wonderful?
2: Actually, I mean, this sounds like a sort of um I've been surprised by how amazingly articulate and insightful everybody has been. And it made me realize that. I think the sort of underlying idea James had for this podcast is that nightlife culture, although ephemeral and although it doesn't get much cultural recognition, it really is the starting place of a lot of really significant and important things. And so Diane Brill, whose picture you were used to seeing everywhere, you would think, oh, she doesn't have much to say. Not a bit of it. She has a tremendous amount to say. Um, And, And similarly, you know, Walt Paper and Michael Musto and Ernie Glam, they've all been so profoundly, I think, brilliant in a way that I suppose in nightclubs, you're not, the expectation in nightlife is everyone's off their face and fucked up and looking fabulous and dancing and drinking and not really communicating. And yet, actually, when you do sit down and talk to all these, they're incredibly, profoundly insightful and they're artists and really... I, I, it sounds like a meh-meh answer, but I,
3: I, no. No, it's true because I think because I think the nightclubs, like it's what you were talking about earlier, Moby, how, how people, like they're these sort of refugees who all came together for all these different, interesting and compelling reasons. And so much of the time that they were together, or at least our experience of them, w- was sort of dancing and out in loud music but that's, that's just part of what attracted these people to New York and to these spaces. I mean, Fenton and I actually, you know, we were, we were always sober the whole time. I mean, we get drunk, but we, our experience of the nightclub scene was not superficial. It was, it was just like more as voyeurs. We always had morning jobs. So we were there, we were not immersed in the drug culture, we were watching it unfold. Um, So getting to talk to people, it's sort of like getting to know them in a way that we never knew them before. And it's by and large been really kind of enlightening and and nice.
0: Well, it's nice to see the sort of like, almost like the erudition and the humility and the humanity of so many people who you might've only just like, passed in a hallway in 1987.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I, I have to, you know, sort of toot my own horn a little bit here <laughs> by saying that I basically, I think I knew as we were booking everybody that they we were booking them because they all had stories to tell and they all were still able to tell these stories. And it's nice to get them on record as everyone is sort of getting a little older and older. And um, it's, it's it's nice to sort of put a document all these things and all these stories that happened when you were discovering the process of writing did you find it therapeutic or is it a bit of a bloodletting is
0: it a bit of i'm i'm bleeding all over the pages for everyone to read oh i i mean and i don't know what this says about me like my solipsism or narcissism but i love the act of like writing memoirs editing um and also something about taking your experiences, your subjective story and having to flesh it out and create, you know, a cohesive narrative. It's a form of art therapy, because for the most part, like if I talk about my past to a therapist or a friend, it's kind of inchoate. Like I'm sort of maybe rambling on, not talking about details. But as you know, when you write a memoir, you have to write details. And it's its a form of time travel, which at times can be very surreal. Like, for example, in porcelain, like, I wrote a lot of it, and this is going to sound really bourgeois, but hopefully you and people listening won't hate me too much, but I was, like, sitting in the pool house of my first house in L.A., drinking organic white tea, looking out at Lake Hollywood, you know, maybe I'll be doing yoga later, and I'm writing about waking up covered in my own poop and vomit, you know, like it was such an interesting contrast and because the past is so powerful sometimes i would feel more of a connection to the past than to the present like the present seemed like the dream and the past seemed real and it's a very, it's a it's almost like a proustian there's a there's a proustian oddness to it and i think everyone should write a memoir even if no one else ever reads it
1: you do talk about how you have to build a narrative and you have to get from A to Z in a way that maybe your life really wasn't like that but you have to you have to put a storytelling element into it um is is that something you know you talk about how disjointed your life is in real life but when you're writing it can't be disjointed it has to actually flow and ebb in a way that's yeah and
0: i guess it it comes down to this idea that the best content, whether it's music, TV, movies, literature, is generous. You know, like, we have all been on the receiving end of ungenerous art. You know, like, an eight-minute long guitar solo, um, (laughs) a memoir that's just, like, I've read some music memoirs that are just so self-involved and tedious I'm like, come on, you have an audience, like respect your audience, make something generous that actually will reach them and maybe at the very least entertain them. Like don't waste people's time with selfish, truly, you know, self-involved art. But I was thinking there's one scene in the second memoir when I went to Dan and I'm just wondering, Fenton and Randy, by any chance, were you all DJing at Danceteria in 1983?
2: I want to say yes, but the answer is no, because I uh, think Randy and I met in 82. So we might have ga- gone to Danceteria, but I don't think, Randy, we got to... I, rem- I
1: remember you DJing there in 85, and it was still pretty new for you guys. Right.
2: By the way, DJing for us was always new because we were so hopeless. I mean, it really was. Because <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> in 1983, I went to danceateria
0: to see, I believe, the bands Mission of Burma and Bad Brains. Mm, I remember Bad Brains. And then when they were done, I walked up, you know, walked upstairs, and there was like the hip hop DJ, and I was like, "Wow, this music is so interesting." And then there was, I don't know what it was called, but it was it was the the gay DJ. And it was the first time I'd been exposed to celebratory dance culture. And I was sort of hopeful that maybe you guys had been the DJs because that was my, that was really my sort of almost like Saul on the road to Damascus awakening where I was like, oh, I come from this punk rock world, but a room full of gay men and women sweating and celebrating is so transcendent. Like it was a really, it was a, f- like Danceteria had such a, a huge musical cultural epiphany there.
2: I would love to say yes, Brandy Randy, we should say yes, that was us, yes. <laughs> and <Yeah>. Los Angeles <laughs>
0: is the land of fiction. So in my mind, you guys were DJing at Danceteria <laughs> when I had my epiphany realization. So without you two, I never would have discovered <laughs> the joys of electronic dance music, so I owe both of you. That's it. This is over. We've just
1: finished this, theater, this the podcast. I am
2: through with this near talk. <laughs> I have to ask you a question, though, Moby. Do you did you ever go to dance theater and hear Anita Anita Sarco spin? Because she would play on the ground floor. And she would play scraping fetus off the wall, and she was legendary, because I thought her whole mission was to drive people off the dance floor to stop people from dancing. She did love that oh she she
0: loved when she when it was just crickets when people would just be furious with her. Um, I mean, I met her once, and I felt like I was in the presence of royalty because I had you know I had been at clubs a few times where she'd been djing and of course like reading paper or reading the voice like. Every, you'd always see her name. And I remember when I finally met her, I was like, wow, you like similar to like my other heroes from back then, like Steven Saban or Steven say, like uh-huh. I first met him at Undo in 88 or 89. And I felt like I was meeting the biggest movie star on the planet.
1: Well, they had those personalities that were, and they looked larger than life. And, but they, they were, I mean, they were intimidating to be around. They were, uh, they were royalty.
0: You were meaning uh, the king and queen. Like I saw Diane Brill at a nightclub from across the room. And I honestly felt like it was like the spinal tap moment where I, I didn't think I was even allowed to look at her. Like I was so And Michael Musto, my friend, my ex-girlfriend, Janet, who worked at interview, became friends with Michael. And um, what was, Oh, Beauregard housed in Montgomery. Yeah. Yeah. And, I met the two of them and I was like how how am I even able to talk to them like these are this is New York royalty in the flesh and uh it was like that scene in Wayne's World but it, but it's funny because
1: later people did feel like that with you and I know that that you've talked about how uh at, at one time at La Palace the Beauté, you were uh, you did a gig with Maripol and Madonna shows up and Madonna just sort of looks at you and looks you up and down and
0: says you're very talented,
1: was, and then walked away.
0: It was my second ever, third, second I think my second ever live solo show, um, with a D, Maripal's Maripol's husband DJ uh, Gigi. Yeah. And we promoted it. We promoted it so much, and I think thirty people showed up, but two of the thirty people <laughs> in the audience were O.J. Simpson and Madonna.
1: <laughs> and that just speaks to new york nightlife too right there you can have 30 people in a room and one of them is going to be madonna and the other is oj <laughs> I, I do have to say too that um you know you talk about uh transcendence of of music and transcendence of art and everything like that to me porcelain the song is as close to time travel as I am ever going to get because I can put that song on now and I am taken back to a very specific room, a very specific boy, a very specific K hole. After, I mean, like I am, I can close my eyes and I am right there. And that is some, uh, so many songs of that era, but especially I just want to say porcelain does that to me every single time.
0: Well, it's one funny, by the way, thank you. Um, and one funny thing about getting sober, cause I've now been sober for real for about 12 years is going to meetings, the number of people who will come up to me and they won't, they're not fans, but they'll come up to me and they'll say, wow, I had some pretty intense drug experiences to your music. And they almost will get angry with me. You know, like they're blaming me for <laughs> their bottoming out on whatever they bottomed out on. I like, yeah. I, I've made some good drug soundtracks.
3: (laughs) Well, I would just like to say that they were equally profound and important while I was not on drugs because I was never on drugs, Mm -hmm. listening and enjoying, and they still transport me. Oh, thank you. There
1: was a gig in Los Angeles, I think it was. Um, with Perry Farrell and Tracy Lords I love Tracy Lords so much <laughs> I think she's such a spectacular woman so in, she really she's Randy fence she reminds me a little bit of Monica Lewinsky in that she is someone who has experienced the worst that humanity can can throw at you and she's come out on the other side is such a wise woman I just I love her but she was DJing and Kiyoki was DJing and you went up to Kyoki and you asked how things were and he said, not good. And I wonder if this was at the time of Angel, if this is w- when that was happening and when you learned about all of that.
0: It would have been the summer of 1995 um, and I had done Lollapalooza, but then Perry Farrell started this other festival called the Enit Festival and he rounded up all of these odd electronic music dance people like Kiyoki, myself, um, I forget who at Tracy Lords, who was a DJ at the time. And, cause I had known Kiyoki so well, 89, 90. Like we actually, <laughs> for about a minute and a half, we were in a band together. Um, no. Do you remember, you and Kiyoki? Do remember Steve Lewis? Yes, yeah, sure. So Steve Lewis was married to a woman named Jennifer and i think it, i remember jennifer beautiful beautiful, beautiful jennifer. Girl. And so steve put together this band with me <laughs> and kioki and jennifer and we were called evergreen <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember this at all and i remember everything it only lasted for about a day and we played we played one show at the limelight um we're like I think Kiyoki was DJing. I was on keyboards. Jennifer sang, and we did a cover of Tomorrow Never Dies by the Beatles, by John Lennon. And uh, wait, is that Tomorrow Never Knows? Okay, I forget. But in any case, we were in this band, so I hadn't seen him in five years. And I went up to him and had this conversation. I was like, hey, how's it going? How's Michael? And he just looked ashen faced. And something was clearly not right and he just said, Yeah, like things are things are not good. And I mm, that is interesting. In a way that didn't invite more questions. I was like, I think I just sort of backed away and left him I don't dumb and forgive me if this is an indelicate question. Is Ko Kyoki still alive? Is he around? Is he
1: Yeah, he um in fact uh you know after Michael died um in d- December uh, we've all been in, in more contact with Kyoki than we've been in a long time. But he still DJs. It's nice to talk to him. Uh, like, I, I've been reconnecting with him a lot lately.
0: Oh, also, speaking of DJs and Fenton, that, what we were talking about earlier, like, the celebrity DJ, we, I also sort of forgot to mention my celebrity DJ hero uh, was Johnny Dinell. Oh, yeah. And when I moved, I finally moved back to New York on 14th and 3rd, 1989 or 1990. He and Chi-Chi lived across the street from me. And I used to just see them on the street. And at one point we actually spoke and I couldn't same. I'm sorry to sound like such a wide-eyed innocent, but like I couldn't believe that I was speaking to Johnny Dinell and Chi-Chi Valenti because they were at that point like such fun, they were like at that di- uh no, who was the woman who threw the New Year's Eve ball? Suzanne Bartsch. Like I felt like they were in this—the like, sure. royalty of royalty, levels of New York nightlife.
1: And they're still going, and they still look fantastic. And there's—we're going to have to get them on the show as well at some point. Your second memoir, then it all fell apart. Then it fell apart. Sure, either one. Is that yeah? <laughs> you know what? um i i haven't read that one yet but i
0: assume that things fall apart very quickly it's okay here's the best way to describe it it starts with a suicide attempt and goes downhill from there <laughs> oh, no, oh, no.
1: I, there there's a there's a, a particular party that happens on christmas day that, that people are still angry reading about it, things get very very
0: bad Oh, there's there's a lot of stuff. The funny thing is, very few people read the book. Like the first book did okay, but the second book didn't sell much at all. And it's interesting because there were a lot of people with very strong opinions. And I was like, wow, how do you guys have such strong opinions when you haven't actually read the book? But that's, as we all know, that's the culture in which we live. It's like... People filled with, you know, like rage and outrage, and they haven't actually read the book or seen what they're responding to.
1: The documentary that came out recently, Moby Doc, which I gotta say that it took, I was 20 minutes into it before I went moby doc moby dick it like i'm it, that shows to my mental decline that it took a long time for that one to sink in
0: or it shows that it's a terrible pun and that we've are just kind of like <laughs> i mean using puns publicly is always a regrettable thing so like <laughs> I, I i feel like it's my job to apologize for like naming this movie after a pun. <laughs> but
1: it is it's really spectacular. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to watch, but it's um it's real like non-linear and it's um there's like animated bits and there's reenactments with friends who are reenacting parts of your life and there's conversations with David Lynch and David Bowie. Um it's uh it, it's it's really fun and it did you enjoy making it and has the reception been everything you wanted?
0: Well, the reception, I don't know, because uh, we all remember the early days of, like, Gawker and Gothamist, right? I guess it was around 2003, and uh, early days, Gawker, Gothamist, I was so self-involved and self-obsessed, I read everything about me. And it was when the press (laughs) had really started to turn against me, so the press was getting bad, but then the comments... We're at times... Oh, never read the
2: comments, ever, ever, ever. That is the first rule of Drag Race, never read the comments. So
0: (laughs) I, I did not know that. This was 2003, 2004, and I read this one comment about someone who hated me so much that they wanted to stab me and watch me bleed to death in front of them. And I, at that point, a little voice in my head said, you know, maybe you should not be... Handing your sense of self and your well being over to strangers. And so, about 10 years ago, I simply decided categorically, I don't read reviews. I don't read articles about myself. If I'm on TV, I don't watch myself. So, I know almost nothing about how I'm perceived as a public figure. And it's great. So, to that end, like the reception for Moby Doc, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I have no idea because I'm not. I don't have the psychological fortitude to read reviews or pay attention to how I exist in public.
2: I love that because I think it also speaks to the, the, the nature, the underlying what we're talking about today, which is sort of club culture. And when you were talking about making work that's generous, and I think that's one of the things about club culture is it's very much about putting it out there. It's not about... Stand. I mean, of course, in the days afterwards, you go and see if your picture was printed or if you were written about by Stephen Saban. But in the club culture in the moment is really about just putting it out there, isn't it? And not really caring about what other people say or think. It's just generating and just emoting. And I always thought, James, that's what I always thought you always did so beautifully. It was like, you know, a lot of people on this podcast have said James would bounce up to them. That's how they met him. But you were like that. You were just putting it out there. It was this act of just generosity and just radiance. I think that's... Well, I I think that's a beautiful place to end. A compliment
1: to me. (laughs) Um, uh, We do have to go in, but Moby, I could, I have another 13 pages of questions that I would love to pepper you with sometime, but it's been really fun. It's been great connecting with you and seeing you again. And uh, if everyone has a chance, check out Moby doc and read porcelain, the, the memoir. And then it fell apart. The second memoir, because uh, it's all it's it, it is it's it, you're fascinating and I enjoy spending time with you. And this has been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much and would love to do it again and again. please. Yeah. <laughs> well, and because we've
0: all ended up in the first city of the apocalypse, a.k.a. Los Angeles, let's um, let's all meet up and go out and get middle aged guy lunch or something.
1: I love that. I'm there. That sounds fabulous. Thank you so much.
2: Money. Success.